Welcome to Direction Correct, a POS podcast with Cold Scott. Today's guest, Ryan Hammond, head of Total Rewards at Databand. Thanks to our sponsors, Polynode. Harness the full power of organizational network analysis with Polynode. With one-click data integrations and built-in relationship-based surveys, Polynode enables people analytics practitioners to move from data to insights faster. To learn more and see why Polynode is trusted by some of the most innovative companies in the world today, book a demo at polynode.com slash directionally correct. All opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. Office culture is fun, man. Is it though? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, life is what you make of it. Definitely. Yeah, fair enough. One of the things I always thought about <clears throat> at prior employers that affected my quality of life was how far away is where I could fill up my cup with ice and water from my desk. Oh yeah, absolutely. If it's a long distance away, that decreases my quality of life versus <laughs> it being close. Cause I'm a big water drinker at the office. And so if it's a long way away, that means I'm gonna have to make this long trek 10,000 times in my career, you know? A, a, a company would hate to do that to me because I'm going to talk to every person along the way and essentially distract everybody up and down the office. Right now, I currently sit by the restroom and I say hello to everyone that uses the restroom. And I think they hate me for it. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're like, what are, like, you, what are you talking about? I'm about to go to the bathroom. Like, leave me alone. This guy is cataloging my restroom <laughs> uses. Uh, the, the other thing is like, if you actually get you know, eight glasses a day or, you know, whatever they tell you to get two liters or whatever the hell it is. You're peeing all day. Like you're in the restroom all day. Oh, I, I should have said that because it's not just the distance to the, the water machine. Yeah. It's also the distance to the restroom and the water machine, because if you're drinking a lot of water, there are consequences <laughs> for your actions. Right? Yes. I remember one place I had to walk upstairs to go to the restroom. That no, was really annoying. No, that's that's okay. That is quality of life issue right there. Yeah. Especially if you're in a rush. Like I can't tell you how many times I fell up the stairs trying to get to the restroom in a rush. <laughs> is this when you're working from home? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, That's some good detective work there, Scott. <laughs> I hated that office. It was terrible. <laughs> Go past I, the restroom my way to the bathroom. Yeah, I've I've mixed emotions about my office at my old place. Um, it was cool and like you know we had you know raised some you know family there and everything, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it was time to go. It what was, was time the, to go. What's the what's the best office? <clears throat> I have an awesome office I have right now, like at home. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but uh, in terms of like workplaces, let me. Think. You you don't have to name places that you've worked, places you've visited. Yeah. Even I think both of yeah. us have made many many site visits. Well, actually, I'd love to get into this with you. Well, this okay. whole Let's we've kind of talked about it before. Well, I, well, Ryan, join us. Maybe maybe we'll get into it during the podcast. How about that? I'll, I'll bring it back up. <clears throat> How's it going, Ryan? Good. You? Good. It's good to see you, man. Oh, hold on. I'm gonna switch to my good mic here. I think. There we go. I should sound more authoritative and oh I love it. Sultry voice. <laughs> there you go. So I have a question for both of you. <clears throat> are you office office people or are you open office concept people? Oh my like, gosh. I, I think so. I I think the research on this is like super clear. The open office concept cuts productivity by 20%. 
for for knowledge based work. Yeah, it, it was is one of the worst ideas to come over. Sure. There's there's natural experiments on this where they yeah. they'll move people from it, it's at least a cubicle experience into an open office concept, and with, with the expectation to your point, Ryan, that they're going to talk more, they collaborate, and we're going to draw some great things on the whiteboard, this sort of things. But essentially, they just put their earbuds in and start messaging each other on Slack. Essentially, what happens that they, they find ways collaboration goes down. Yeah, 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 yeah. They find ways to put up these barriers. Yeah, and this is this is um, this is one of those areas. I mean, a lot of this was done by um, the humanized people or the Sandy Pentland lab with the little badges and everything. Yeah, this is like rand, like gold standard randomized trials with actual measurement. Like you know, not like what do you feel, but actually measuring how people talk, how close they stand, how often they interact, all of that. It's like gold standard work, which you very get very, it's very hard to get in social sciences. And it's pretty clear. Like it's hands down clear. Well, you're a social scientist, Ryan. Yeah. Right. <laughs> by, by training. Yeah. What, how did, um, do you, do you think social science is a science? Just out of curiosity. Oh man, coming in strong. <clears throat> at the very um, I Ryan's think, the kind of guy I know I can lean into all my d tough questions. Yeah. He's like the guy I've been waiting for. So I think the scientific method can be applied to social settings. And I think if and, that if that is your definition of social science, which I think is a perfectly valid definition of social science, applying the scientific method, um, then yes, it is it is a science. I think... I think that, you know, the fact that you're dealing with a, a space, you know, like, do I believe it's like there's a natural laws, you know, foundation? Not so much. It's not. So if, if it requires natural law, like immutable natural <laughs> law, then no, it's not. Yeah, some of the engineers really scoff at our R-square values. They really do. They're like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> we we deal in causality not correlations yeah um yeah but, you know which, which is which is fair but like so so that's what i would say like but i think but do i think there's value in using the scientific method to understand social you know social interaction or social phenomena a hundred percent i mean well, otherwise, i'm just over here trying to existence you might you might, you might uh, <laughs> say yeah. but yeah well, I mean, like the the alternative, the alternative is like compared to what, like compared to nothing, just having yeah. no idea, just guesswork. Yep. I mean, exactly. even we can get a little bit better through yeah. hypothesis testing, et cetera. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah, which is the way. By the way, I think about uh, things like algorithm and bias too, which is oh my gosh, <laughs> like I'm worried about this, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure a we can measure it better, and two. You're compared against what against a world yep. in which like subconscious bias isn't running in every single interview <laughs> ever made like yeah. give me the, yeah. give, give me the algorithm <laughs> compared against utopia that doesn't exist yeah exactly compared to yeah compared against what right um though it's yeah. also the same thing when we do statistical tests in our field right which is like hey i found a significant result that says, well, I don't know. We have one of those now. Do do uh, do companies learn by going to conferences? 
Oh, we'll get <laughs> I'm gonna there. Be nice about, I'm going to be we'll, nice. We'll get there, Ryan. I know. But like, it's like, okay, do I have to beat random chance that they don't? Or do I have to beat my essential? So I actually just ordered a Bayesian statistical textbook finally. Because oh, really? I, gosh. Yeah, because I, because I think for our use cases in people analytics, like the Bayesian framework makes the most, I'm pretty convinced make the most sense because I don't have to beat random chance. I need yeah. to beat somebody's priors. Priors. And yeah. here's a framework that allows me to either improve on priors, incorporate priors, to try to you know measure and do better than priors. Um, so yeah, I just ordered it. Out. I, I'm going to read it later sometime. Yeah. Tell me what you think about this, Ryan. I, I kind of went deep on Bayesian stuff a few years ago mm -hmm. and the, oh, it's very, it's very attractive in our space. And the thing I ran into, um, with it's, <clears throat> it's not that it's unhelpful. It's that there are lack of existing priors in many situations in which we study things mm -hmm. and without a credible prior Bayesian doesn't give you as much lift as you would hope in terms of accuracy of model and predictions. And so uh, I think it's, it, it is, I'm in the camp that it is the future of kind of social science statistics. It's just, we've got to get a better foundation of priors to make that real lift. Yeah. Or if there's a place where you really don't have priors, it's probably not the right, the right method. Fair enough. But I, I also think, what do you think about the idea that Whenever we're trying to influence someone, when I take a, an analysis to said executive, the fact is their priors matter a lot in the change management process. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And so, so like having having a having a analytical system where I could go to them and say, "What are your priors about this?" Great. I love. That. I've now incorporated it from a change management influence perspective makes a lot of sense, even if the priors are bad. Right? Oh, I love this concept because think of it instead of like, we do a lot of statistical significance testing. It's like, is our result significantly enough different from the our customers' priors that they would be willing to act on it? That is fascinating. That, that, is, that is what I'm hoping the Bayesian approach solves. Now I need to go read a book. <laughs> <laughs> and figure out how it really works um, in, in practice. And, and that's why I was super interested, Colton, what you're saying, where you found the limitation. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about that. But, but it, I, it, I, really, I really do think, and going, well, I, we can say, but, but going back to my days when we were thinking a lot about uh, predicting risk, like attrition risk, you know, this idea, this idea that we could, well, we could do better than random chance for sure. Now the question is, could we do better than a manager's priors about the attrition risk of their employee? Nope. And the answer is, well, no. So, so interesting, the answer ended up being, when we can talk about how we, we operationalized it or from what we saw, the answer is that it was about equally as good, but if you mix the two, there were, oh yeah, they, like it, literally it, it, the the correlation. So the the core the core stat here is so we had we had um, individual level identified survey data with um, um, both the employee saying what their likelihood of leaving was, um, 
Then we had whether they left in the future post, post the survey. We had our prediction, which came from just, you know, externally available biodata. And it turns out that they were both about equally predictive, but they're correlate. You want to guess the correlation between the two predictions? 0.8? Hopefully very low. Try 0.0031. It was like almost zero correlated, which shocked me. Because if you'd asked my prior on the correlate, so Scott's prior was 0.8. My prior as a social scientist was 0.35 because everything's correlated at 0.35. <laughs> and so when yeah. it came in as 0.00, I was like, I'm well, the, blown, the, blown away. This is the beauty of orthogonal data, especially in prediction cases, right? Like you, you get new insights, new sort of perspectives on everything where it adds predictive value. And, and that's exactly what we saw and was that when you looked at what, what, what was happening was when you crossed the two, the predictions went up, the, 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 correlate, the confusion matrix looks so much better. And why was this, why was this the case? Well, partially because, let's see, I'm trying to remember now, the, the, Oh, our data was particularly good. The external data was particularly good at taking out false positives from the manager, from the manager or from, from the employee. So we were very good about people saying, oh, I'm really upset. You know, I'm going to leave. We were really good at predicting when they, under those cases, when they wouldn't leave. Mm. And so we were, we were sharing, we were sharing that out. And then it was very good at shearing out, um, shearing out false positive, you know, false positives where we were saying, we think they're going to leave and they weren't. So both sides took out those false positives and left us with a much more pure set. I mean, this is also the argument against common method bias, where essentially you're tapping the same resource with the same yep. people, right? You just get like, once again, different perspective. Are, are you, are you predicting uh, turnover at the individual level? Yeah, well, that's what we were doing. That was high Q. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, you're talking about high Q right now, right? Yeah, yeah. This is yeah. This is the my fir the first startup. Um, high Q Labs. That's exactly what we were doing, and we were. It, I can talk about all the mistakes we kind of made when we were doing it from a market perspective, but could we could we predict for almost every company, like way better than random chance? Yes. And then we had this data, which we were able to get with this client where we're better than what an employee knows about themselves. And so you can but only guess whether- Better yeah, than intent to stay. <laughs> yeah, it was basically intent to stay, yeah. yeah. But, but intent to stay correlated with exiting at about the same rate as the external. Yeah. And they're both predictive, like they both yeah. have information. Put them together and they, because they were zero orthogonal, it turned out that the interaction effect was really good. Now, a third axis would have been, what does a manager think? Because that's, a, a whole other viewpoint that is not what an individual thinks, not what this is saying. They're like, I'm definitely going to push them out this year. <laughs> well, yes. I think we, we did focus on voluntary exits. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, anyway, um, Cole, congrats, by the way. Are you, oh, thank you, you stoked? Uh, I am. Well, it's not one of the things we're getting onto today. Okay. Um, we're talking, you, well, you're, you're public now. We won't talk about it today. That's fine. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I do want to actually focus, 
Let, let's actually start with the Haiku journey because you have a fascinating career in people analytics up until this point. And I mean, you guys were trailblazers um, with both Haiku and what, what, what you guys were doing with Cindio as well. And then you made the move into internal people analytics. And then, you know, now have been going, and I don't want to step on your story, but like getting into like the total rewards compensation and all of that space. Can you talk to us about that journey and, and what it was like being so early? Because you were very early in this space. We, yes. Um, I would say we were very early in this, in this space and maybe too early. Uh, so, you know, there's this idea from population ecology and, and, um, I'm an org theory person. I, I think in org theory terms, for those of you who are out there, apologies to the IO psychologists who may not have read this research, because why would you? Um, but <laughs> Shun the org theory people are like, you know, like endangered species out there. Just like I know. I have few. to keep reminding people it's, you know, not only not all, not all roads lead to IO psychology. And this is a good example why, right? Which is, which is this idea of, you know, thinking about there's this, there's this early period where being unique, you think it's like, Hey, we're doing something no one else has done before. We have this unique offering in the space. Like we should be able to sell this. And what we learned in Haiku Labs is like, well, if you're too unique, if no one else is selling what you're selling, you're not legitimate. Yeah. It's like, you have to, like, you have, why is no one else buying this? Like, and, and we were very much on that, that bleeding edge in, in what we were doing. And we weren't recognizable as, you know, something that you would buy. There was no budget for us. We were all selling on people's discretionary fund budget. Um, and those things were, were very difficult. Um, those were very difficult about Haikyuu. And, and so, uh, for those well, who may not know, because I actually had the experience on the other side of the table from that, which is I was bringing you guys up to my leaders and saying, look at what this company is doing. And I couldn't get them, convince them that we should look at you all because it seemed too radical. Yeah. You know, and so it was, it was very much a challenge unless it's seen like within the Overton window of whatever we're doing in people analytics. That's right. And, and so being, being so early you need this, you need this, I much rather be in a place where there are five or six like me. And so I think when I talk to people who are founding, you know, founding things in people analytics or, or founders and other, other things, and they're talking about how unique they are, it's like, wait, actually, if you're thinking about a space to go into, it's actually good to go into a space where there are other players doing what you're doing. You actually want to be in RFPs where, you know, where there are two or three other legitimate actors for them to choose from and just try to win those. Because if you're on the bleeding, bleeding edge, unless you are saving people unambiguously a ton of money, you know, just unambiguous amounts of value, like right out of the box, um, which is very difficult when you're doing anything in the social sciences, you're just not legitimate. Right. There's no, and there's no priors. There's there, no priors. There, yeah, there's no there's no priors to go into. And and the choice that we had made about the product we went to market with at HiQ, which is this idea that we could provide attrition risk insights, even down to the individual level. You know, part of that was is this creepy? And and I will say, I will say that I think we learned quickly enough from feedback, which is, 
hey, we need to like we need to think carefully about that about that um, about what we're offering. And it turns out that if you could provide attrition risks in interesting buckets that were not individually identifiable, like by skills, for example, what skills are at most risk in your organization? Um, you know, what job categories, things like that. People yeah, are much this more, was trying to get at yeah. earlier, like providing just individual level attrition risk is like really kind of a dangerous game because you set up a situation where like a manager has to go to an employee and have a really awkward conversation with them. Well, so, but this was one of the other, the other questions in Haikyuu was the immediate assumption was, oh, the attrition risk you're giving me is you're telling me whether this person is an active job seeker. But um, for those of you who don't know what Haikyuu did, and you you can go read some of this because we ended up being a court case that almost went up to the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. um, um, for for and feel free to get into that if you want to, Ryan. We, we'd love to hear about. I it. mean, <laughs> but uh, but you know what what we were taking was were people's um, people's individual professional profiles and ask yourself like if you say take a LinkedIn profile for just for example, as one potential source of data, um, you know, <laughs> so much like central yeah. to the story, <laughs> um, you know, or indeed profile, I might add, you know, an indeed, an indeed resume or other places. But when you have a public facing professional profile, and by the way, I want to make clear, like we didn't ever go after any data like Facebook or not people's non-professional um, yeah. non-professional social media, for example. Um, that was outside of the bounds of what we thought was appropriate and what we did. We only did what people were putting up as their professional face. And so that data, when we hashed it, turned out to be pretty predictive about whether people left. The immediate presumption was that somehow we were inferring people's job-seeking behavior from it. Um, and that's not necessarily true because what else are we also and and I will say like um if you you take an IO psychologist background if you you think about hey this is about what's going on in somebody's head sort of approach because that's what you're good as an IO psychologist at thinking about it's like oh you're thinking about oh you're looking at people's intent to leave you're looking at people's job seeking behavior their desire to quit um and we ended up getting definitive data that that's not what we were predicting at all, so, we had so like, zero just to be clear, like, with intent to stay, but that's what you presume, right? What 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 are you predicting? Ah, so what do you what do you think? You know, what else could we possibly be predicting that would have besides people's job seeking behavior, their internal state? We were predicting the likelihood. The way I think about it is, we were predicting recruiter pressure. Recruiter we were pressure. We, recruiter. Pre the recruiter pressure and the likely opportunity, the oper the likely opportunity structure being offered to the employee. So, so you were for looking example, basically instead of at push factors, you're looking at pull factors. Exactly. So th that's how we ended up articulating it, which is, hey, we actually don't know so much about the push factor. In fact, it turns out we know zero about the push factor, probably. Um, but what we're doing is we're helping you measure the pull factor on your employees. And so for things like, for example, um, if you had a picture on your professional profile, you were, you know, sub substantively more likely to leave. 
And part of that is because if you, and I actually sat with recruiters at one point and watched them go through recruiting. If you, yeah. if you do not want to be contacted by recruiters, take your picture off your profile because they're, they're making decisions like super fast. And if you don't have a picture on your profile, they're going to skip you. Um, that makes super sense. Like yeah. whenever I see someone without a picture on their LinkedIn profile, I'm like, what a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> why, why even have a page? Yeah. It's yeah. It's illegitimate. Right. Um, so we were, we were good at doing that. And if you think about this world, what had happened was pre, um, you know, public facing profiles like LinkedIn, the labor market worked very, very differently for a lot of roles. And then all of a sudden it became mediated by the Indeeds, the zip recruiters, the LinkedIn's of the world for, especially for professional, for, for professional hiring. And now all of a sudden, you know, people didn't have to be active job seekers. There was the, all this recruiting pressure coming on this pull factor that was very different. And we could actually measure that pretty well at, a, at an individual level. And that it turns up is very valuable. I'm, I'm, I, and you may not know the answer to this, but out of curiosity, at like a societal level, <clears throat> are those pull factors normally distributed or power law distributed? Oh, because I actually think from like a societal level, it's like a huge power law at play yeah. where a few folks are getting just inordinate amount of demand, whereas the vast majority of people have zero or none or very little. Yeah. I So I would say it's probably a skewed distribution for sure. As high as a power law skew, not sure, but it's definitely not normally distributed. Um, yeah. I think from, from what we saw and I'm, now I'm going back to, going back to like thinking about these like graphical charts we we would create. And of course that was all very much like the, the game. Cause what we launched in 2000, 2014, 15, somewhere in there, like, you know, LinkedIn, like LinkedIn and those, that sort of like social media moderated labor market was actually still relatively new. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't, it wasn't as mature as it was today at all. And so we were providing, pretty good, pretty good insight, um, for firms about where that pull would come from. And we were pretty good at like, you could think of it as almost reverse engineering, whatever recruiting algorithms, the, whatever shoots you to the top of recruiters lists, we actually were capturing that pretty well. So it's almost like we were reverse, we weren't reverse engineering the algorithms to be clear, but what we were doing is taking the correlations that those algorithms were creating about people's actually likelihood to lead. This is even more valuable for the job seeker than it is for the organization. Let's the organization is like, everyone pull down your photo from LinkedIn. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, no. And, and, and actually there was at some point a discussion about, Hey, if we have these insights, should we sell these to people about yeah. here's what you to do to maximize Absolutely. your, your you want a job? Here's what you need to do. Here's the five steps. I started like a mental stopwatch the second that Supreme Court case came around or, or almost Supreme Court case came around to see when is LinkedIn going to try to create their own product that does this? Yeah. Well, I you mean, know. they should have bought. I mean, <laughs> talk to someone like me. I think our surprise was why didn't you just buy the team? Yeah. Um, and yeah. frankly, frankly, I, I will say, you know, all all uh, respect to, to LinkedIn and, and the wonderful people there. 
Talent Insights, which is a tool that now is actually pretty amazing, mm -hmm. would have been more amazing faster had they bought us. Um, I think we were. I think we were on to. I mean, it wouldn't have been exactly what they're doing. And and keep in mind, one of the things that we did is we made a, a explicit decision. We had a lot of pressure to flip and instead of do the retention side of the market, to do the you should be selling to TA. Yeah. You should be, you should be, you know, like we had a lot of people saying you should be going and telling TA, hey, we can tell you which of the which people are most poachable from pick target company why. Like we had a lot of pressure to do that. In some sense, you're like, you're like, maybe we should have done that, honestly. But one of the things we were trying to do was to stay out of LinkedIn's lane or stay out of the lane of the people that owned, you know, like owned whatever, produce this data. Own is the question once you put it out yeah. into the world That's on a billboard. Who owns the billboard information? Yeah. Um, we were saying we're going to do the other side because it turns out, you know, that's something that the producers of this sort of data can't sell. It's a, it's kind of dystopian in a way too. It's like you you can go back to the organization and say like, here are the people that are most likely to leave, not because like they're unhappy, but because like they're most valuable to the external market. Yeah, and you need to take care of them for this reasons. But on the other flip side, like if you're predicting someone's intent to leave. Like take care of them. That's what you tell the organization. Take care of them, fix their issues, what have you. But I mean, like, th there's value to both of them. Like, you want to keep yeah. your most valuable employees. Wait, yeah, totally. Sure. And and that's kind of and and we were saying, hey, we can help you understand it with finite resources. Where should you put some more of this? Totally. And of course, the company could be like, well, I really value this. I'm going to put all my resources towards value, and we could say, well. You know, actually, it turns out you don't have a lot of risk over there, but you have a lot of risk over here, right? So th there was a good value proposition there to be done. So that that was Haiku Labs. Um, you know, I I would say we were really too early and too sophisticated and too niche for what people analytics needed back there back then. It, had we been, had we, and I take some of the responsibility on myself because that initial product that we came out with Haikyuu, that is what I designed on a napkin and handed over to the founder when I was at MIT. You know, he I want to do something in people analytics. I literally took out a napkin, Yeah. you know, in the friendly toast for those of you who are Cambridge. <laughs> um, and I, and I drew this out, like I drew this out on a napkin and said, build that. Um, I would be really interested because I, I had been doing attrition prediction algorithms with internal data at Google as, as part, as an internship. Um, as, as I was doing my PhD and I, you know, I basically at the time I said, it's going to be really hard for you to get internal data from firms because there's really hard data to get. However, there's this amazing external data that has better data than most firms have about their own employees. I bet if you take this data down, you can find signal in that noise. That was my bet. I'd never done it before. And then, you know, we found a very, very bright astrophysicist. Um, who, you know, turned data scientist who built it. Um, she lives around the quarter for me right now. So, um, and do you go we, surfing together? Uh, she doesn't surf, but we'll, we'll sail and do lots of other things. We're, you know, lifelong startup friends now. And, um, and, and we built that now going back to when the market was, what should have we built? We should have built, um, I had, I had steered away from doing survey stuff because I thought the market was saturated. If I was to go back again, 
I would totally go build a good survey vendor. I didn't realize how <laughs> bad in 2012, I did not realize how bad survey vendors were. Just awful, awful, awful. And I'm just like, it's a saturated market. Why compete in that? Right. Um, and a hundred percent, I probably would have gone and done that. Um, yeah. you know, cause that, that's one of the other things that Mike West, um, for those of you who know him in the people analytics community, uh, when we were at Google, um, we were the ones that, you know, went into the breach and convinced the company to go from anonymous surveying to confidential surveying. Um, and you know, for those of you who are at Google, you're still taking to this day, the Google guy survey. One of my, yep. one of my personal, one of my personal, uh, accomplishments is I named that survey. So Google oh, guys, fantastic. yeah, that's, yeah. That's, yeah I think that, we had the person who leads that survey on a while back is, is the Google guy's name, but, um, but, you know, so think about it. Like at the time, had I sat back and said, well, you know, someone just came, what would you build? And I said, you know what? We should build a real survey vendor that, you know, is predicated on confidentiality over anonymity that it builds something like a real, like, instead of like these one and done huge full census surveying, which is what everybody was doing at the time, you know, sat back and said, why don't we build something that actually believes statistics work and go to sampling and build a, by the way, I still think this is a great idea for you out there who are want to build stuff. Um, go build a survey, a survey tool and vendor that is predicated on the idea that instead of one big, huge census survey, you want to run um, sophisticated survey sampling um, and repeat and pulse surveys and, and that sort of thing. I do think there are some, some things like this um, out there yeah. now, finally. That's what I should have maybe done in 2012. Same idea. I mean, the idea was running around my head, but I thought the market was too saturated. Instead, Ryan, I you live and you learn, man. Because everyone has a budget for that. <laughs> well, I didn't mean, mean for us to spend so much time oh, on sorry. Haiku because I feel like you're much broader you're gonna, of a. You're, you're going to edit this. Okay, like, Leia, let's move on. Um, and then. T t tell me about SurveyMonkey. <laughs> no. <laughs> We're not going to talk that. You know what? I, I tell people I only play an IO psychologist on TV. <laughs> you just got my, you just got the, my best IO psychologist right there. Um, so I, I shouldn't go any deeper. Um, but yeah. And then, you know, so then, you know, rolled off of, of there, decided I wanted to, you know, fully found, um, founded Cindio, which really was, was um, we, we bought the tech stack, off of Zach, um, you know, Zach, who is over at Vizier now, um, to help take what was a consulting tool and continue to build it out to be a SaaS platform in the social network space, in organizational network analysis. And, you know, I think as, as Zev and I had started to do that, um, the, the same pinging came up, which is, is this too early? Is yeah. this too early for what people are willing to do? The sales cycles were feeling long. They were feeling complicated. They were feeling like people are like, "Ooh, I'm worried about this." And as we were going through that through that process, we decided to say, "What else could we build and sell that would feel like it had shorter sales times?" And you know, given Zev's background in in labor law and his connect his amazing connections with with lawyers, 
he he had been running the you know um, a, a consulting part of of a law firm that was doing pay equity analysis. Um, you know, it's one of the first things I built as a people analytics professional when I first twenty years ago when I started my career um, internally for a company. We said that shouldn't be in the hands of consultants. That's expensive. Mm-hmm. It's slow, and all we have to do is productize multiple linear regression. Well, and the funny thing is that. how, how that, like that concept is a whole vertical in the HR tech community now of companies yep. that do just that. Yep. Yep. And, and, and yeah, and we were, we were the kind of, but it was predicated on the fact that people understand what this is. They're already buying it. They're just buying it as a consulting service. Um, and so we, we kind of built the first version of that. Um, I was very, very fortunate to be in the early part of that journey. Um, my risk profile changed, frankly, um, is the way to think about it is, you know, I'd done a PhD in my thirties, one startup that didn't exit. This was the second one. Um, you know, this was the second one and, you know, it's just, I just didn't have the risk profile, um, at the end of the day. Um, but I'm super, super proud of what Zev and the team there, you know, um, Maria's doing, I mean, I was, I was out and exited before Maria showed up. Like I probably would have kept more of my equity in the company (laughs) and I, and I known such a wonderful, amazing person would show up to, uh, to, to lead the charge there and they're just doing amazing and it created a vertical. Um, but you know, then that started my rolling on and building these things out internally for, for companies at pure storage, you know, did a stint at Nike, um, you know, and then right now I, I run, I kind of broadened out. So I've gone back to my total rewards compensation routes. Um, also kind of running HR tech for, for data vant. That is fascinating, Ryan. And I feel like you're, you're like, if, if there was like a history lesson of people analytics, you know, you're not a founding father, but you're definitely like, I don't know, like uh, uh, this is probably the wrong analogy, but like a Henry Kissinger, like a guy behind the scenes who's making a bunch of stuff. I happen. really prefer founding father over Henry Kissinger. Can I, can I just say, can I, can I put in a, can I put in a vote? This no, is I, this is strong praise coming from Cole. He's the uh, people analytics like hipster. Oh yeah, I, 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 I was is Henry Kissinger hip again? I didn't know. No, this. I, I'm just saying, like a guy behind <laughs> the scenes that was making stuff happen. Oh, yeah. well, you, you know, know, I mean, you know, I think if you think about back to that era, I think if I look at who who our high Q customers were. Mm-hmm. That looks a lot like the founding fathers and mothers of people analytics. Too. Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. it. You know, RJ, I mean, a lot of the people you would recognize, they were they were in there with us trying to innovate and push. Um, you know, uh, I mean, Facebook was our first client. Yeah. Um, well, what's, what's the next big thing, Ryan? Um, well, so right now, uh, what, what's the, oh, in people analytics? Like, what do oh, I do? Yeah. Hey, man, whatever no, you I, got, I, really. But, um, well, so, so one thing that, I mean, what's consuming me right now is a, is a systems implementation. So like, you know, I own an HCM systems implementation and oh my gosh, like, I'm sorry. (laughs) And, and, you know, look, I, I, I say that in the sense that these things are hard and they're complicated and they're hard, they're complicated. They, they can have significant impacts on people, positive and negative, and they're bumpy. They're always bumpy. They never go to plan. Um, they never go to plan. They never go to budget. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's something, I mean, 
for all my data, any data vamp friends out there, like, I'm sorry, we're, we're getting through it. I promise. Um, <laughs> we really are. Um, but, but I think, you know, going back and I think we're seeing this in the market is something I, you know, I'd be very interested to hear from you guys on as well, which is, you know, people analytics was a niche that people were always trying to figure out where you fit. And we kind of still yeah. get bumped around to different, you know, to different like, oh, you know, total, total rewards owns you. Oh, wait, maybe it's the people ops people. Yeah. Maybe it's CHRAS, maybe it's strategy. You know, there were a few of us that were lucky and, and this included myself to eventually report directly to the CPO, which I, I did at Pure Storage. Um, I did again at Airtable um, before, you know, before the tech layoffs hit. Um, you know, I personally think that that's a really good idea for reasons we can talk about. Um, but we're also now starting to see where the leaders that grew up in people analytics are starting to broaden their portfolios out as opposed to being absorbed, you know, being being the the shiny new thing for, you know, a people ops leader or a total rewards leader. And so um, making that transition for myself has been super, super interesting. Um, both in just thinking thinking back about how I'd approach things as a people analytics leader, how does that make me think differently? It definitely makes me reprioritize a little bit in the sense of like, I want to give insights, but at some point you have to run the business yeah. and the operation side of running the business, you remind about how hard and complex that is. Mm -hmm. And you can get why like my brain space gets funneled <laughs> towards the operational thing that has to get done. And trying to keep that open into that strategic, what we would think that insights analytic thinking, that's that's hard. Um, and no, and it one, makes no wonder you and Cole like each other so much. Yeah, I, maybe. <laughs> I mean, but it, it, it's like we like each other. <laughs> <laughs> you look we, in the mirror. We we tolerate each other. <laughs> but but I but I think that empathy then for my gosh, and you know, I have a fairly broad job. But yeah. it's not a CPO job. It's not a C-suite job. I mean, imagine the leaders who are running PLs, you know, that that I'm serving now, and just how, you know, how that cognitive capacity—it's really rough. Let me let me see if I can get on the button here. Um, and I know this is this is not what you're saying, but is the career of a people analytics leader post people analytics? Do they just have to go and lead total rewards or HR systems like? Or is that it? Is it just like we just bounce around and we kind of top out? Like what? What is the career path? Yeah. Well, no. I mean, I think that that's the the question. I mean, I think I do think you we are going to see where you know a direct report to the CPO, a direct report to the C suite is a, a perfectly fine, wonderful career ending path for a people analytics professional. Um, I think if you want to do more than that. Um, then yeah, you you need to take over a broader set of operations and day to day things that people care about. Um, turns out people do care a lot about compensation. <laughs> so, but 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 no, I think it is. I mean, I think it's it, it's that. And then I I don't see a world. I think we've seen a couple of examples, but I don't think we'll see many. Where let's say you're reporting to the CPO as a people analytics leader it's going to be really difficult for you to, to get hired to go do the CPO role um, just as a pure play people analytics person. Yeah. Um, they're going to want to look for someone with certain experiences and operational scope 
I mean, that, that may not be true for like your biggest, you know, your, your biggest people analytics team leaders out there. You know, if you're leading Facebook, for examples, people analytics, like, I mean, you have a huge scope, you have a huge scope of team and role and impact. And I, I could see, I could see in some cases, people being able to make the jump from there to, to the head of, head of people for. Uh, is, is that because like a lot of people, analytics leaders, like lack uh, the business acumen or like lack the business impact? Um, I don't think, it, I actually don't think it's that. And, and in some sense, the business acumen piece, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, analytics leaders get, if you're doing good projects that are impacting mm -hmm. the business, in some ways, you often get a very good, deep understanding of what's going on with the business. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't think it's that. Um, I think Our two perspectives. One, we haven't been organizational therapists before, like HRBPs get to do, and we don't have the deep comp background that is necessary to deal with the board. Yeah. Those are the two things that hold us back, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and if you think about what they're looking for at those those levels. Um, I, so I think the, uh, the, and, and again, they asked this about like certain people analytics leaders and part of the role, like, are you good at managing up and managing executives and yeah. consulting and being seen as a thought leader? I think you can actually get that as a people analytics leader if you're doing high quality projects for, sure. for, for leaders. I, now, do I think the market recognizes that as well as they should? Maybe not, right? And, and I think the, you know, I think for the CPO role, the traditional way that the market has worked has been, are you a senior HR business partner for a very big, for a very big brand name company with, with and that's a great pool to fish in because they bring a lot of skill. I think one of the things that we're seeing in that market though, is there's more and more like, your first, your first job as head of, a head of people, uh, for a company of any size, is almost always going to be a systems implementation, or it's going to be defined by systems implementation, building core infrastructure to make the firm scale and run. Oh yeah, and that makes no sense. I think the I think the market has come to understand that people that have just done people business partner roles have very poor mental models. Yep. about how that works. And so you're seeing more and more people being more and more value placed on things like people who led people ops or people who have run total rewards or people that have owned the HRIS system in some way. Um, I, I think that has kind of now filtered through. And that's a place where people analytics people are actually pretty good and can compete. And where going through people analytics makes you very system savvy by default. That is fascinating, Ryan. And I think about this, one of the things I really appreciate about you is you cut through all the BS, you know, <laughs> of having these type of discussions, which is, is just fascinating. I'm wondering, what did you learn when you became, instead of the startup founder that is trying to sell into these type of functions, when you were leading these type of functions, but pre kind of total rewards? Like, what is the wisdom you gained? And I mean, what's the wisdom that you gained from org theory too? <laughs> just out of curiosity. Well, I mean, I, I just, that's the filter I see the world, right? Yeah. Like anybody that, you know, 
has a PhD or whatever, strong, strong educational background or whatever, it's the lens through which we see the world. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, so you're, you're always going to get that, but you know, I think, I think there are a couple of things I, I learned and, and, you know, if you follow my LinkedIn comments, these might not surprise most of you. Um, but one of the things as a people analytics leader, I learned is you should never build your own system. Like that's just, you, you shouldn't do it. Um, especially if, what, what do you, what do you mean by that? I mean, meaning, meaning that meaning that we were in a place where the vendors do a better job than building out your own data warehouse systems from scratch into oh, okay. Tableau and all that sort yeah, yeah, yeah. of thing. And, but let me put it in a broader context of like why I think that's important is if, if your goal is to be, is to only be a people analytics leader, there's actually some benefit to doing that. You get a big team <laughs> to be honest, right. like you get a big scope, like you get, super, I guess, super control over kind of what you build. And, and, and that's a, there's some benefits to that political capital, but if, yeah, but if, if your goal is, you know, to have operational impact and become like a broader operational leader and you start to worry about things like the HR, the overall people team budget, and you start taking it from that perspective and you're looking at wait, why are we spending this much to do this? If I have an opportunity to do that, that doesn't feel right. Um, so, so one of the things is just being in, in those systems, um, how complicated they are, kind of what you're doing. You know, you don't want to increase complexity in those systems, especially when you don't have to. Um, Headcount complexity, operational complexity, um, all of those things. Like, and and if, if you are, you know... You know, I think I would never point someone who's doing people analytics and wants to go somewhere else to like make those sorts of choices. Um, you're going to burn a lot of time um, and I think might be learning the wrong lessons. Um, you know, one of the other things is how you choose projects. And this this should be clear, I guess, if one's coming up through consulting tracks. Um, one of the things that's very, I think, difficult in people analytics sometimes is you know, there's this operational reporting that has to exist inside of the firm. And often you get pulled into doing that. And that ends up consuming all of your resources. Yeah. At the end of the day, like the question is, is how do you, how do you organize a system that allows you to do, to do that efficiently? Again, another reason why I would just go outsource that to the best of my ability. And how is it that you do strategically impactful projects? that really impact the line. And there's so much, and then maybe this is the org theory. These are complex organizations. Uh, complex organizations are not amazing because they are paragons of efficiency. Like <laughs> The complexity complex is a feature, not a bug. Yeah, Complex organizations are amazing because of what we build with them while they're all messed up. Yeah. I mean, the ability, like any complex organization, if you can make it run 2% better, that is worth a lot of money to big, large, complex organizations. And as a people analytics leader or as a people leader, the question is, what are the sorts of projects that are, are going to have that sort of maximal impact, um, that sort of impact on the on the organization? And there should be lots of them. So why is it that we get caught up in, you know, caught up in, you know, things that maybe 
or spend too much time, effort, and money on things that have kind of less impact? How do you dual channel? Impact in those priors, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think one of the hardest things, <laughs> people analytics, one of, the, one of the hardest challenges we have as a people analytics function that I've come to learn is it's, it's about speed and timing. It's decision-making in organizations works so fast yeah. that it's being able to get sophisticated insights to a decision-maker before or at the time that they make those decisions. And, and putting together a system that can do that is really, really, really hard because of the speed of information and the complexity of the sorts of decisions that are getting made. And the decision's gonna get made. Well, we, we, we cover this every so often. Like if a leader wants a decision or like some information to better inform a decision and <clears throat> the people on the team says, okay, we'll get you that in like six to nine months. That's not helpful. That's not yeah. helpful at all, right? Or, or, the, or the people that want it, like a- Well, my, that's the question is like- Yeah to do to sometimes the questions and, and sometimes there are major decisions like that. I think that's one of the things that I will always, if it's going to alter the course me. of the organization, then definitely let's get it right. Otherwise directionally correct in most cases, right? Dire well, directionally correct in it and at what speed and at what cost, because the fact is that the, the decisions made in organizations to me, like often feel there's a disconnect between the impact this decision has and the amount of insight and knowledge that goes into making it outside of pure intuition. You know, it's, it's what's going through the neural yeah. net of a leader that is absorbing huge amounts of context is pattern matching on huge amounts of experience. To your point, that prior should not be dismissed. And if you go in as a people analytics leader is, Hey leader, I don't, I don't, I, your prior has no value here. Um, instead, <laughs> random chance, better than random chance has value here is, is probably not the right way to, to be going about it. Nor, it's not nor, how you win friends and influence people. Like you have to guess, like to your point, Scott, it's the fact is certain analyses and the way it is, they do, they take two months to do. And yeah. that means you have to be guessing. You have to be very good at seeing around the corner about work that has to start to answer a question that you have not been asked yet. Because by the time they ask you the question, you've pr unless you have a super like a beautiful system or the question's just set up for the data that you have, it's gonna run right by you. So that ability to guess requires a lot of knowledge of the business context, lots of years to the ground with the right leaders, understanding what's important for the business, understanding what might be coming up and getting ahead of it. I mean, speaking of priors, uh, I hear you have prior experience surfing in Nicaragua. <laughs> oh my gosh! Right? <laughs> now, now we're uh, we're loose linking. Um, that is what <laughs> I do in my part of what I do in my off time, Scott. Let's, but I'm and I'm happy to talk about it. No, um, no, um, yeah. So I picked up. So I moved to Santa Cruz during my high, the high Q years, um, and I I picked it up in my late thirties. Nice, um, by nice. the way, is an awful time to pick up surfing because it's it turns out it's really hard and it's really time expensive to learn. So, right, if you anybody's been out surfing, if you go out surfing for an hour, um, if you get 10 waves in an hour, that's pretty good. So 10 tries in an hour. If you have a day job, 
<laughs> and time is expensive for you. That's not a lot of reps to learn a hard athletic task. Um, Pacific Ocean's cold as hell too, right? It, yeah, mean, yeah, it, it's cold. But it actually turns out wetsuits are pretty amazing. Um, they're they're really good these days. Uh, you know, shout out to so many innovators here in Santa Cruz who figured out how to make how to make that work, right? Um, but um, but yeah, so yeah, I picked it up. And and one thing I'll say is, you know, just I was thinking about this because I knew we were going to discuss it is having something in your life that you're not good at. Yes. And that you are, that you like, and that you're constantly improving at. That is, for me, it's one of the the core joys that have, the core experiences you need in life. If I, if I don't feel like I have something like that, filling that niche, I just feel stagnant. You ever get in a fight yeah. with one of those uh, beach bombs? The uh, sur- surfing community could be a rough crowd, man. I, I've been I've been yelled at. Yeah. Um, no, I, no, I, I, 100%. And, and sometimes they, it, was, <laughs> it was justified, right? I did something dumb and it can be dangerous. So there's like the, you know, get off my lawn sort of yelling that, you know, is a vibe that this I don't This is like. our beach. Get out of here. Yeah, that that's not good. But there is some of it that's productive, which is, is, you know, you're in an ocean where you can drown um, and, you know, waves of consequence or even waves of not consequence, if you hit someone can be a problem. And people are also trying to maximize their time out there. All good reasons. Um, So there's, I think there's good yelling, you know, educational (laughs) yelling, call it. Educational educational yelling. That's what I say when I honk my horn in the car. It's educational horn honking. Um, so, so, so there's a little bit used, I think, I think it's better now. So many people picked up surfing during, during the pandemic. And that was, you know, I was picked it up before then. You got a longboard? Um, uh, I I primarily longboard. Um, however, I have a place in Nicaragua now and the place in Nicaragua is beach break. And so when I go to Nicaragua, I'm basically learning, I'm learning, I'm transitioning towards, towards shorter boards that you need for the shore break there. And so I'm, I'm like progressing. I, I'm hoping that I'm a, if I had more time, it'd go faster, but um, I'm hoping I'm a good, maybe a year, year and a half away from being like a functional, a pretty functional kind of like beach break surfer. But I'm primarily mm-hmm. a longboarder here in Santa Cruz. Cole, Cole's a boogie boarder himself. He talks about it all the time. <laughs> I did use the kneeboard and wakeboard, but that, those are very different. I'm going to visit. Um, I, I do have one last question for you, Ryan. I think you're uniquely positioned to answer this question just because I feel like the general theme of the podcast so far is you've been early to things, right? You're a trailblazer. You've been in those spaces before. Where is people analytics going or should be going that isn't, that is the next kind of Rubicon to cross for our field? It's a good question. Have we, have, we, have we panned all the gold? No, okay. no, no, no. I mean, definitely not. I, I mean, the, there's low-hanging fruit out there. We're, we're making progress. I, I think, um, you know, I will say, I think the time for organizational network analysis is, is here finally. I don't think it's late for that now. Um, I, I think there's more acceptance of it. I think we've thought through the privacy, you know, the privacy I mean, look who the podcast is sponsored by. I know, Exactly. <laughs> Look who the the podcast is sponsored by. And so I think there's a huge amount to be done. There's a huge amount to be done to understand how organizations really work and how do we take those insights and make them useful and impactful 
um, every day. Another place that I would say is that I don't think people analytics does well, but I think there's a, a good opportunity and I'd love to see more products that do this is, you know, ultimately, if you look at it, we tend to produce analyses, products and project uh, projects that are serving the top leaders. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a more organic bottoms up impact we can have when we think about how do we productize things that help employees be more efficient and effective and productive? How is it that we provide far better products to teams to interact? Yeah. And I think there's a huge amount of social science that we know yeah, that we just have not figured out how to productize in a way that provides those impacts at that more organic level. So I would say that is a, a, a huge area of opportunity. I think there are good examples of people trying to do it. Um, I think well, that, that's I think, why I've given kudos to like cultivate before who got acquired by Perceptics. They've never sponsored us, but they give manager and individual employee level insights to people yep. in ways that are based in science that are actionable and it's helpful. And I think I, I violently agree with you that the, that we could be doing a better bottoms up approach in terms of giving the insights out into the business. Yeah. And, and there are products, you know, trying, trying to do, you know, human eye, like there are not human, um, Humu, like there are people out there really trying to solve it, but I, I think as a function that there's still a huge frontier there. Um, I think, I think there's also just a lot of organizational work that we need to do. I, I really do fundamentally believe to be, true brokers of honest insights that we are best put inside of either directly to the CPO or inside of strategy head and not, and not buried inside of, um, people functions that, you know, and maybe not for no ill intent, you know, would tend to want to bend insights towards their own impression management or their own of will or their own questions. Like, and that's what I would tell a CPO is if you want, if you want a real understanding of what's going on in the organization as unfiltered as possible, um, I would take your people analytics people and have them report directly to you because as hard as people try as well intentioned as we are, it's just human, um, that it's not going to, the put under somewhere else, it's just not going to optimize for that. We didn't even get to go to the nerdery corner. Can we, no, can we yeah. like, do a little nerdery corner and like edit out? Because I want to talk we about having such a fantastic conversation. We didn't get to do a confusion matrix. We didn't get to do a nerdery. I would say that's an ultimate compliment to you because usually <laughs> we just give it there automatically. And so uh, for those of the people who listen to the podcast who only listen to the nerdery, which there are a bunch for some reason, they just skip there. We apologize in this episode. But Ryan, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, Scott, any final words for Ryan before we wrap this up? Oh, man, it's been great. I, I'll, I'll go to your surfing sort of uh, orientation and say, aloha, Mr. Hammond. You should, you should come. I have a surf camp in Nicaragua. We teach people how to surf down there. The water is 78 degrees. And okay, you can we release baby sea turtles at the same time. Well, I think we're going to have to do a DC pod in Nicaragua with you. We'll get to the nerdery and <laughs> well, Matrix. Uh, let's do that. And um, and because you have, you give people what they want, Cole. 
Let's go find a little time. <laughs> let's go do, let's go, a, we'll do a little short nerdery one that you can release as a special nerdery episode for those who missed it. Because I read, I read the articles, you know how long it's been since I've read like the deep methods article of a paper. Here, I, I, I can do, I'll do, I'll do 10 more minutes. Can we do 10 minutes, Cole? Yeah, uh, yeah let's do 10 minutes. Let's give the people what they want. The nerdery. Uh, I, I will do the uh, like stars, how firms learn at scientific conferences. Uh, the results of this aren't necessarily that interesting, but it's more about uh, the uh, the uh, idea here. So firms use scientific knowledge more likely when they actually participate in a scientific conference. Uh, and there's stronger learning effects when they participate and sponsor. Uh, and also these sort of learnings are concentrated at the top firms. But what we don't really talk about is just what firms get out of joining conferences and what uh, uh, why they would do that in the first place. This, this article suggests that they get some scientific knowledge and cred going. Uh, what have you to say? I don't. I, so I don't think I don't think it's a status effect. I think I think this is a learning effect, you know, uh, just, you know, from from thinking about it, which is. I think what, what it's measuring very well, and I will say, like it's been that, a long time since I've thought as hard about an instrument. <laughs> and like to the authors out there, I mean, oh my gosh, the amount of data work that went in to like try to measure this in some yeah. sort of like, you know, econometrically sound way. I was just, uh, I was in awe. Somebody, yeah, they're like measuring people's flights and yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. misery like, index, all the flight routes wild. from all the flight routes from these various cities as an instrument. I'm it just and, and then they're like matching papers with potential papers that could have been in there. I mean, it's counterfactual yeah. papers. Um, I mean, wow, um, amazing, but uh, but I think I think this for me from an org theory perspective is this classic like uh, exploration exploitation. Um, orientation of firms, and and what we're capturing here, seeing is this is a important venue by which firms that do real exploration are doing that exploration and invention, and it kind of makes sense that the top firms are there because they're the ones with more resources, but also they often get there because they're very good at exploration and inventing new things, um, and this is one of the ways that they they do that. It's, it's a maturity function too. So like a firm uh, develops some research, they have a need for it. Therefore they want to present at a conference. They present it, they talk to more people, then they get to present some more and now they're gathering up more and more information. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, to me, it's, it's just the reciprocal relationship. And we actually talked about this on our last episode that hasn't come out yet, Ryan, but why uh, con conferences like PSYOP are so rare mm. that you can see this reciprocal relationship with industry and academia contributing to one another and creating these generative ideas that come from, you know, all the, the fantastic methods that they used yeah. in this article, which is just insane. But I, I just feel like that, that is, is perhaps one of the things that's missing across many social science fields and one of the hindrances of innovation, perhaps. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think, I don't, I'm pretty sure the social science fields have not met a conference they didn't like. I know. <laughs> I mean, do I, now, do I think, do I think that we should see, and this is a normal thing in academia, especially academic, academia conferences and some places where I think industry conferences can excel is the cross pollination between the cocktail parties. I think, I think org theorists would 
would really find value in going to PSYOP. Yeah. I've never been to PSYOP, by the way. Sorry. You um, should come. I also, I also think, I know I should. Um, I also think, I also think that IO psychologists would find huge amounts of value in going to conferences. They don't usually go to a strategic management conference right, yeah. or, you know, kind of org theory conferences. They all kind of meet at Academy, but then, you know, they and all I mean, go off to their own A little diluted. So, you know, I think that would be, and then industry conferences, we get, we get a little bit of a mix, but um, yeah, that's what I'd say is go to, go to a conference. It's fun to go see your friends cause you're all in the same cocktail party, True. but go to a conference that you're not, you, you don't usually go to, or when you go to Academy of Management, go hang out in the sections that are the opposite of where you are. If you're macro, go to micro, if you're micro, go to macro, and you might just find something super interesting to do. That's been my personal one is to see if we could get IO psychologists and economists to do more together. I think that both communities have a lot of ad and there's a lot of orthogonal research in both that I think could really contribute to a greater whole. So that, that's I'm definitely pretty sure people won a Nobel prize for that Cole. I know. It's like, behavioral, I mean, it's a good example. I, I get behavioral it. economy, behavioral, you know, economics come from exactly that cross. And, and probably one of the best things that happens to, to feels like a one hit field. Yeah. I mean, one of the best things that happened to, yeah. you know, uh, can I uh, tell a brief story and then we'll move to the next one. So sure. when I was doing my PhD, I had a friend who was doing, um, his PhD in finance and, uh, at Harvard at the business school. And he, he came, he came one day to our game night. And he's like, I just had this really interesting discussion with my chair. And he was like a second year student at this point. And he's like, my, my, my chair came in, handed me a sociology textbook, sociology 101 textbook, and said to this finance guy, your dissertation is somewhere in here. Go find it. That's fascinating. Isn't that a cool story? Yeah, that is. Yeah, I mean, I'm also curious what game was being played at game night. <laughs> oh, uh, we're we're a mid a midweight Euro strategy game, so we were probably playing Agricola. Did you have a girl show up? <laughs> we were both married at the time, so we actually had multiple <laughs> we had multiple women at the game table, Scott. Oh, well, I don't and know. It was only because they had to be there. Right, Ryan, Ryan's no, a liar. No, it, it turns out it turns out uh, we married well. Um, but, uh, um, so let's talk about beards real quick. Oh, okay. 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 Uh, I, I, I do have something I want to say about this one, but Scott, right. go ahead. Where are we at? Uh, the effects of facial hair manipulation on female perceptions of attractiveness, masculinity, and dominance in fail, uh, male faces. So sorry, it's been a couple weeks since I actually read this. Uh, but, 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 they essentially asked, uh, I think female college students and they gave them five levels, uh, of male beard faces all the way from clean to full beard. And they found that light beards were considered the most dominant while light stubble was the most attractive for short and long-term mating. And I was told Ryan that you were going to have a beard today. I think Cole lied to me. So. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I will say after reading this, I felt a little less bad about, you know, being an all remote zoom worker who every once in a while shows up with light stubble instead of shaving. Cause I forget. Yeah. Ryan, you're, you're a catch man. You know, you're attractive. <laughs> I mean, well, so, so here, here was my first thought. 
Um, here was my first thought. Besides thinking, like, did Cole read this when deciding his facial hair? <laughs> he voices? wrote it. <laughs> Might is, as well. Is if you if you read into it, who did they do this with? They did this with uh, a very me... nice set of twenty year old girls in a northern, I think Cardiff University, and so the the sociologist sociologist in me asked the question if you replicated this at portland state university would it be the same yeah. <laughs> among a, like if you went to portland and yeah. did this with you know a panel of women in their 30s do does the full beard win out this is absolutely low tier research but it's fun <laughs> and that's why it's here <laughs> <laughs> is is like the guy with the ZZ Top beard the most dominant? I mean, like in, the in Viking Port beard. In Portland, in Portland, you, you know, you you might assume that is true. Um, shout out to my my Nike friends in Portland, but uh, oh yeah, Beaverton. Yeah, I've got I've uh, I've got a, a a guy on my team who who I won't embarrass, but I I finally met him in person for the first time because we're an all remote company, and the moment I met him. My first response, and I told him this, was, you are what every man in Portland aspires to be. <laughs> Just a lot. I mean, the, the, and, and it's authentic. I mean, the, he raises goats on the side. I mean, he's like, a, yeah. like I was like, it, and, and this was the other side of the country. I was like, yeah, this is awesome. You're awesome. So uh, it sounds like his male face was displaying a full beard considered most masculine, aggressive, socially mature, and older. So that's, that yeah. sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Nicest guy though. I don't know why, <laughs> why I would think about that, but, but you know, I mean, this is replication, right? It's repl replication. I want to see this replicated in different social. Oh, this, there's no way this would hold up to like a universal, like go around the world and study this type of science. But yeah, well, again, the, the funny thing to me is in reading the paper, nowhere did they make that distinction. There, that, that was not in the limitations part of the paper that this was like the limitation in the paper was we didn't study women over different parts of their menopausal cycle or something. And I'm like, oh really? You think that's the limitation here? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the, there the you go. The corner, males but. sample size. <laughs> you know, like this is, this is like barely scratching by. I know. Um, it was, but, but so I was trying to figure out why you chose that one, but it, that was fun anyway. It was supposed I, to be, fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, all right. Well, I, I think we, I think we've sufficiently uh, quenched the thirst of the nerdery folks. But Ryan, th this is fantastic, and uh, uh, Scott, I, I'll give you the final word again uh, before we let Ryan, uh, you know, exit us. Uh, Aloha, Mr. Hammond, once again. Aloha. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll talk. They don't say that in Nicaragua, but yeah. No, they do in uh, Fast Times Ridgemont High. That's right. Oh, okay. We're in Fast Times. Okay. Perfect. Aloha. <laughs> Macaulay. All right. It's, what do they say in Nicaragua? Uh, let's see. My Spanish is improving. Uh, what would you say? Uh, what would you say in Nicaragua? I'll come back to you on this one, Cole. You, All right. I'm at the it's end a, of my I was room. trying to give it as an exit to the podcast, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, a, well, you, a la proxima. That's what yeah, I was a la proxima. All right. A la proxima to all today. And uh, you've been listening to Direction Correct at People Analytics Podcast with Cole and Scott. And today's guest, Ryan Hammond. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks so much. Hey, guys. Direction Correct is dedicated to you, our listeners, to help educate and entertain you on how to effectively do people analytics. 
By supporting this podcast, you are helping us continue to provide valuable insights and knowledge to our listeners. Please consider becoming a patron of the podcast. You can find the link to sign up in the show notes or at patron.podbean.com slash directionally correct. Thanks for your support.